Chris Blackwell an inductee of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is widely considered responsible for turning the world onto reggae music. As the founder of Island Records, he helped forge the careers of Bob Marley, Cat Stevens, Grace Jones, U2, Roxy Music, among many other high-profile acts, and produced records including Marley's Catch a Fire and Uprising. Blackwell currently runs Island Outpost, a group of elite resorts in Jamaica, which includes GoldenEye, the former home of author Ian Fleming. He received an A&R Icon Award in recognition of his lasting influence on the music business. He is the author with Paul Morley of The Islander, My Life in Music and Beyond. Chris Blackwell, legendary founder of Island Records. Welcome to The Creative Process. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So you just received the A&R Icon Award and the ceremony was attended by 500 of your peers. And David Geffen said, I cannot think of anyone more deserving of this award than Chris. What he did for the music world and reggae in particular is astounding. He's a pioneer. And I was wondering what you felt to be in a room with all these peers of yours, because you're just such a trusted and loved by so many people. And your book, The Islander, is such a wonderful and thrilling read filled with so many adventures. But behind it, all. I was reading it and I couldn't help but think that the author quietly in the background an unassuming force that throughout the decades has built such great friendships and trust. It's like a life well lived and a marvelous insight into getting things done without fear or fuss. Oh, thank you. So there's no school for founding a record company, but it feels like this unique and enchanted childhood you've had, the freedom of your parents' lives and the vivid characters like Errol Flynn and Noel Coward and Ian Fleming. I mean, when you're surrounded with rebels like this as your role models, it doesn't set you up for a life as an accountant. How do you feel this helped sow the seeds for entrepreneurship and adventure? Oh, I think it helped a huge amount, really. But that's partly because I was sick. As a child, I had very bad asthma, and so I didn't really spend any time with any other children at all because I was always on my own and uh, living in this house, which was in Jamaica, and I was just really alone all the time. So I didn't go to any other children's parties or didn't go anywhere at all. It was a different kind of a life to most, I guess, children. You know, but I was not at all unhappy at any time. I was very fortunate in that regard. It was just the fact that asthma was a problem. I was sort of a, a lot of the time in the, in bed with, with asthma. So I guess because of that, when somebody came around and came to the house for a lunch or dinner with my mother and, and father, you know, my dad would have me sit down and listen. And all, all that kind of growing up was how, how it was. So later on, when I started to sort of connect with people who had come from America or from England or whatever, I had many opportunities to meet and talk to people who were bringing news of the world, as it were, into this little area that I was living. And I was very happy, really, in general, because most of the time I spent with the staff in Jamaica, which were gardeners and there were horses around, so there were grooms. I spent most of my time sort of hanging out with them now and joining them when they're eating their lunch or something like that And because I, I love the Jamaican food. And I think that's really where I sort of started my life and the people that I really cared about and liked. So I guess that's how it was. 
Yeah, and you have this different sense of time, a lot of reflection. And I think that this is really maybe a hallmark going into Island Records, where it's a model of allowing artists time to find their voice and to really deliver their best work. It's like a, a patience. Yes, I think actually that's absolutely right. I, I think it is because I grew up with it and the, the positive about it. I wasn't unhappy, honestly, for a moment. I was really, really lucky. I mean, I never felt I was on my own or I was missing things, but I became very open when there was somebody arrived and I sort of chatted with them and things like that. And then they went away and I probably never saw them again, or in some cases I saw them again. But in other words, it wasn't a very active life growing up at all, but it was an opportunity of meeting different people who were interesting. And yet you say it's not very active, but when we look at the roll call of people, Errol Flynn or Noel Coward or Ian Fleming coming in and out of your life, I mean, your mother was the original Bond girl before there were the films. (laughs) She was a model for, and your father, of course, the great characters and examples. So you say it's an uneventful life. To to us, it seems like a kind of a, a magical childhood that's very hard for many young people to have that kind of experience now. Yes, I guess that's true. Because I was n- not going to school and everything, I can remember clearly when Errol Flynn first came into the house, because my father had gone down to the port to to meet him, and he brought him up, and I remember very well him arriving, and I, he was such an amazing-looking guy, you know, and he was a charmer, and we became friends. He was very nice. He took me down to his yacht, which was in the harbor, and he allowed me to go and be where I wanted to be on the, on the boat. In fact, he even allowed me because he was somebody who did whatever he wanted to do rather than what he was supposed to do. And he let me go where I wanted to be, which was under the bow of a sailboat. It has a, a net underneath it. And that area there, you're absolutely not supposed to go to for obvious reasons, because if you drop, the boat runs right over you. But I used to ask him, well, can I just go down there because I felt it was safe? And so he let me do that. And I'd come back to the house and spend some time and have lunch lunch or dinner and there was a lot of laughter and he was an amazing character and he was so handsome and uh, I didn't know at that time you know what movie stars were all about I didn't really know because again there wasn't much films happening in Jamaica when you're uh, seven eight and those kind of ages so it was just really meeting this guy who was amazing and and he and my dad were friends very quickly and then my mom too so that's really the time I spent with him but he was very mischievous as I think I've heard you are as well and I'm thinking you have a movie star quality yourself as I was reading the island I was thinking who could play this is it Leonardo DiCaprio who would be a good you have to get a special character to play there's only one Chris Backwell but it's interesting when you say about he's taking you into his boat as I think about his life and something that you share as well Errol Flynn it was never as I understand never about the money it's just about the adventure and living a full life and creating good work. That's right. It wasn't about money. It was just really a different life. I guess in a way, it was a really a great opportunity because one would meet different people and they'd be there for a bit and they'd be gone. And then you may see them in a year or something later when they came back to Jamaica or something like that. But it was never something which was sort of organized. Different things would just sort of happen out of the blue. 
And they would happen also out of the fact that I spent a lot of time hanging out with the staff. And it was an extraordinary, thinking back about it, it was an extraordinary life. It was very, very, very different. And I guess it was just different opportunities of seeing different things happening in different ways all the time. Yeah, and I think that that relaxed atmosphere that you had or people, you know, drifting in and out of your life and this ability to make quick friendships, but deep ones, you know, it's something that you brought into your dealings in the music business, which is just really developing when you came into it. But looking at the artists and the whole list of artists you work with, just some of them, Bob Marley, you 2 Steve Winwood, of course, Cat Stevens, or Grace Jones, Roxy Music, and so many others. When I talked to people about you, they said, there's just something about Chris Blackwell. It's like a, a mystery or something, but you tapped into something in them that allowed them to flourish. I mean, how do you define that? I think from meeting them and getting a feel from them and just what their personality, what their character was, what the energy that was coming from them that I would feel. Do you know what I mean? I think that that was really it. For example, I was not initially interested in signing Cat Stevens, but that was mainly only because I'd seen him before on television and the song he was singing was, I'm going to get me a gun. And I thought, I don't get that. So when somebody said that he was interested to meet with me, I wasn't really interested because I felt already that he was going in a different direction, which didn't sort of make, make sense to me. But when I met him, when I finally met him, and we just sort of sat down and he, he played a song and then he played another song. And then when he played the song Father and Son, then suddenly the, the lyric of the song and what it meant and everything, I suddenly felt the sky is, is fantastic. You know, what I person I'd seen on television had nothing to do with this person sitting in front of me. And so that's really when I said to him, well, and I opened up to him and I said, honestly, I wasn't really interested to meet, but this, this song that you've just sung for me is such an incredible song. And then we started to talk and uh, he said, he started to open up and say, well, he had a difficult time with the label that he was working before because they weren't giving him much support to do what he wanted to do, etc. And so that was sort of, that was music to my ears because I felt that I could definitely connect with him. Yeah, that's your speciality. And the album that came out of that connection, then T for the Tillerman. You have the story there about how you caught him out of his contract with Decca, but T for the Tillerman, I can't think of one that all the songs are amazing on that and as we think we're now in cop 27 and you can listen to where do the children play and that's that song lasts forever well that was the song when i heard that song that was it that was the one that's just the fact that he was somebody who was thinking like that do you know what i mean and it was just the way his care for that you know and in in, in rock and roll it's a lot of it is kind of rough and tumble whereas when he sang that song the fact that's what he had created and that's the direction he was going i thought well that's really something and that's why i immediately sort of just jumped on it and said listen i'd love to do something with you and uh, we came up with an idea of how we could get him out of the company he was with and and it, it started and then after that, I helped um, find another guitarist who he could work with, etc., who he had chosen, really. And then I left it to him. I never went into the studio. 
I didn't go in and tell him what to do. It was just when he'd finished the album that he said, oh, it's finished. Let me come in here. And particularly T for the Tillman, that album, I mean, I'll never forget hearing that because you played the first song. I thought it was great. The second song, I thought it was great. The third song, I thought it was great. The fourth song, I thought it was great. And fifth song, I thought it was great. And then they stopped to, to turn over the record to turn the second side. And the first song on that side was that one where with the children play, and that was it. Yeah, it's such magic. And it's so, as you say, it's so honest and it comes from a place. It's not trying to be anything else. It's like a, a musical biography, right, of Kirsten? Right. Yusuf Islam. Right, right, exactly. And so, yeah, you often, you're known for this, of letting artists, just giving them that space where they can explore their best songs and their, make their best music. With Bob Marley, though, you also, you've produced some, like, pretty remarkable songs with having your artistic input into Redemption song. But just tell us about your, your relationship with Bob Marley. Well, I knew of him. In fact, I released his first record in England, but I'd had the wrong name. It had come to me where his name was written as Robert Morley. And Robert Morley was also the name of a very well-known English act. And so I thought that was a little odd when I heard the record, you know, it match at all, this actor. And we put it out as Robert Morley, and it didn't do anything much. But this was right at the beginning. This was almost 10 years before I actually really met him and signed him. Yes, in the the chronology is it's such a long relationship and when you eventually met him and signed him you had a little different vision to present him to the rest of the world so that he would reach the widest audience we appreciate him well let me explain because the first record it was just a record that was sent to me you, you see before i went to england i visited the records in jamaica and i went to them and said let me release your records when in england so they would send records for me to listen to and release. If I thought the record was okay, I'd put it out. So, and it was, when I say put it out, it wasn't put out on radio and on television and things like that, because at that time, radio really wouldn't have really picked up and played anything with the Jamaican music. So it was right at the beginning. You see, what I was doing when I first went to England was driving around all the record stores that existed around the periphery of London, where the Jamaican communities, because after the war, a, a lot of people from Jamaica went to England and ran buses and the tubes, etc. And that was really where I started, which was something which I loved doing. I used to drive around in a little mini and zip around, go into the stores and go and see the people and play them the record and say, well, take some of these. You, I think this will sell, and then if it doesn't sell, I'll take some back, which is what I do, and things like that. And that's really how I started in England. So the Robert Morley record was not a successful record and was a long, long way Bob Marley started to grow in Jamaica. It took really some time before I ever met him. So when that, that 10 years time came by, he was rec recording with different people and he was really trying to get into the American markets. He had his two other key talents with him called Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. And both of them 
were really great. They're very, very talented too. Both of them were writing their own songs and everything. So that was like a group together. And I met Bob Marley in England because he'd been sent over by the manager that he had in America. Had sent him over to England and then Scandinavia to work in a film. So they went there apparently. And I'd heard from somebody uh, who'd rung me and said, well, the film not working out in Scandinavia and they wanted to go to, back to Jamaica but they didn't have any airline tickets to do that. And could I meet with them and try and work out some deal with them so they could get themselves back to Jamaica? And that's really the first time I really met Bob and talked with him. So it's sort of a big difference from right at the beginning to at that point. Yeah, it's so interesting. So all this time, you're getting to know his music first, you're hearing something within it, you're actually having these relationships with the audience, which is very, I think, unusual in this age. Not only do you give this kind of attention and space to your artists, but you're getting a lot of the direct feedback and listening to the audience. As you go around, you have these experiences, oh, so the, the jukeboxes, the Wurlitzers, you have this such detailed market research that's like it's really one of like giving time and respecting every party in that process well that's where i learned everything from you know well firstly just to go back again from the beginning my father used to play music really loud and those were days when there were 78s so the 78 would be about three or four minutes on the record you know, and then you'd have to take it off and turn over the record to play the other side. And so I grew up listening to Wagner and Puccini, things like that. So that's where I got a sort of love of music. Then after that, when I was briefly at school in England, a rather short period of time, at that time, there was another person who I connected with who loved music from New Orleans. And I just fell in love with that music. And I went to New Orleans and I spent time there. And that was the best music coming out of the world was from New Orleans. And that's where it all started. And so I had those different opportunities of learning this different music and getting a feel for it. And, and if it was something that I sort of felt I really already knew or I felt, oh, gosh, this sounded great. You know, music was the main thing in my life, really, from an early stage or all the way along. Yeah. It's a wonderful place where it's so tied to our memories and how we define our lives. I want to stay on the well, your relationship with Bob Marley and also the Whalers, but there is that one line of I when you met Miles Davis and you asked him a bit cheekily why he played so many bad notes. And he said yeah. to you, I try to play what I hear in my head, not what That's I it. know I can already play. That's exactly right. That's right. I, and I think it's just a wonderful philosophy that I see that you've applied in your career and life. It's not to follow this track that's already been done, because what's the point of doing that? Let's find this other, let's tune into something that comes from me and comes directly from the artist. For sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So you're hearing then with Bob Marley, you're hearing something else in there that can come out, maybe through presenting it in a, it was kind of rock, adding a bit of rock or a rock presentation to it, bringing Jamaica to the world, but not taking the Jamaica out of it. Yes, that's very good. That's exactly it that you said. It could, because I absolutely felt for Bob to really make it worldwide, as it were, he needed to change just something a little bit. I didn't want him to change what he was doing, not his lyrics and everything else like that. It was more the, the instrumentation of it. So in, instead of it being 
a certain Jamaican music was known as ska, which was the offbeat on played by guitar. And that was the, the kind of lead thing of Jamaican music, which became really popular. But I felt for Bob to be able to reach a wider audience that he needs to move away a little bit from that and focus more and more on his lyrics. Yeah. And just thinking, going back into that time when you're introducing him, I was just looking at last night, the film, The Harder They Come and Jimmy Cliff, but uh, but just looking back at the way music has changed since then, it's a wonderful archive of that time. You should reflect on the way music was then and how it has evolved since that time just it's a different world right yeah the harder they come that film was uh, made by a very close friend of mine and it was at a period where jamaican music had started to really catch fire a bit it was certainly selling in england it was starting to grow and there was interest in england and europe not really in america america wasn't interested in it at that period in time at all but it was really decided to try and get this across, to do a film so you could get a feel for where this music was coming from. And a man called Perry Hansel, who's a very good friend of mine, he wanted to do a film and he me one time and said there was an album cover on Jimmy Cliff, who was one of the other artists that I was working with from early. And he said, he's the guy I really want to be the leader of the film. And so I said, okay, that's great, go ahead. And so Jimmy Cliff really became the leader of that film. And that film really sort of expanded the whole image and sort of and point of view of Jamaican music and Jamaican life. That film was very, very important to get Jamaican music known in the world. Yeah, and you're produced on that film, and it just like preserves in time that moment. I just people in the film, I guess, pressing an album or pressing a single. It was just the whole music making process in Jamaica at the time. You even wrote about it with like Bob Marley and the Whalers that maybe the artists were getting hits and they weren't actually getting paid, and it was just very unequal situation at that time. Well, that started from the sound system guys. There were about four of them. Uh, Cox and Dodd was the main one, Duke Reed, King Tubby, and they created these incredibly massive speakers. And you could hear music from five miles away from them. And that was the whole scene in Jamaica. So it wasn't that anybody was making records to get on the radio because nobody would play Jamaican music on the radio. Even in Jamaica. So the way to get music across was the sound systems. So it was like really the sound systems, they would be playing on Saturday, Friday nights, Saturday nights. It was unbelievable. That was where all the action was. But it wasn't really getting out of Jamaica. It wasn't really getting anywhere other than what I was actually doing was driving around in England, taking the records to the record shops. So that's really how it sort of started to spread in England. Yeah, you're driving around, I guess, in your Mini Cooper. <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, gorilla of music producing, <laughs> bringing out, getting to the people. Just set up the flavor of that a little bit to tell us what London was like in the 60s. Well, London was happening, very much happening. And the film business in England, the great movies were being made out of England. And also the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, all that really started to explode 
And what was really great, the music that they were loving was the music which was coming from black music from America, the blues, New Orleans, of course, St. Louis, those different parts. That music was coming to England, and that was what was really happening. Jamaican music was creeping up from the way I mentioned to you, basically through the Jamaican communities who lived around London and Birmingham and Bristol, etc. Yeah, and speaking of the Rolling Stones... It's amazing the artists that you've signed and nurtured. I believe also Rolling Stones was that was an option for you. And sometimes you turned away from options that because it didn't fit, maybe they already had their own trajectory. So it's very interesting and very principled. There was one time particularly that Mick asked me to come and meet with him because I think he'd sort of heard the records that were coming up from me, mainly Jamaican records and things. And was that's what he wanted me to come and meet, meet with him to talk about. He was leaving Decca and he wanted to go to another label. And, and I said, it makes absolutely no sense for you to come to my label because you're already a huge what you're doing. So, you know, if Decca isn't delivering for you, then, you know, PMI should be the company you should go to because there was nothing really that I could have really helped him I think he just really wanted to actually, now I come to think of it, like really just hang out for a bit and chat and talk about the Jamaican music because he became really interested in Jamaican music. He went to Jamaica. He kind of loved it. Well, like some of the other ones that you didn't go with were Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Madonna. And it's just very fascinating because it's a, a decisions of like integrity or just because you felt that they had their own path. Well, Led Zeppelin, I was in a recording studio in England, going to be doing a, a record with Group Pro Traffic, which was led by Steve Winwood. And in those days, it took some time tuning your guitar up, different instruments and everything. Nowadays, all that's done in a second. But in those days, you know, there would be a lot of that, and I couldn't contribute to that. And it used to drive me nuts, wait, waiting until it got all ready to start songs. So I drifted into another room in the studio. And I went in and I heard a record coming out. And I, I thought, I've, I've never heard anything like this before in my life. It was just unbelievable. And I said, well, these guys, they said, it's a new band, really. I said, well, what are they called? They said, I don't know what their name is. Some, something Zeppelin or something like that. So I said, well, who's their manager? And it turned out that the manager was somebody who was a sort of a pal of mine, not a great pal, but a pal, because we shared an office. He was on the fifth floor and I was on the second floor in the office. And I went to see him and I said, listen, I heard the, your band. It was just unbelievable. So we kind of agreed a deal that uh, I would sign them for England and Europe. And the manager wanted to sign with Atlantic Records of America. So I said, OK, I'll have England, Europe, and you have America and Canada. And, so, and we shook hands and that was that. And, and of course, it never really turned out because when they went to America to make the deal with America, Atlantic said, no, we want them for the world. And so he came back to me and said, oh, we didn't really, really wanted to be with Atlantic and uh, I made a deal with them. And I said, never mind them. And I didn't mind it because it wasn't something that I would have been able to help a lot on. I certainly loved what I heard in terms of that piece of music, but I didn't feel that it was something that I could be involved in managing them or doing their recordings. 
Yes, because for you, it is this artistic collaboration and you have to know what you're adding. It's, again, it also takes a lot to get you to say yes, because I believe Grace Jones was on your radar for a while and you weren't sure. How did that come to be? Well, the Grace one was also one of those things where I was having lunch with a couple of friends and this guy said to me, by the way, there's this model who is just stunning, you know, and I think she's wanting to be a, a singer. You should find out about it. So I listened, and uh, then, then a couple of days after, she was in a magazine, and, you know, she's a stunning-looking lady. She's amazing. And when I saw her there, I thought, in the magazine, I thought, well, well, I've got to follow up. I definitely will follow up. So I tracked down. And what had happened is that she had started doing a recording because she was more in the sort of fashion business. <clears throat> she was a model. So she was doing a recording with these two people who were in the fashion business and just outside of uh, New York. And uh, she'd been doing something with them. And so I tracked them down. And it turned out that they were desperate to see if they could get their money back from the money they'd put into her doing a record. And they they did not want to be in the record business. It just happened like that. So I met with them. And uh, I remember this very clearly. They came to my office and they were very nervous, you know, and they were really hoping that I'd be able to make a deal with them because that the record they thought was going to be costing about ten to $15,000, but it was closer to about $60,000. So they were in a state. So when I went and sat with them and they, I said, well, can you play me a bit of the record that you're working on? And they put the record on and it was a song called La Vie en Rose, but it had been recorded by a kind of drum machine. And, the, and so she put on the, they put on the record. Uh, Grace wasn't there or anything. It was just these, this couple in, his, in the clothing business. And they put on the record and there was a drum machine. And all it played was a drum machine. There was no vocal. There was no instruments, nothing. And the drum machine played for about two and a half to three minutes before I heard a voice. And by the time I was at two and a half to three minutes, I thought, oh, my gosh, it's a disaster. This is going to end in tears. And then suddenly I heard the voice, and the voice sounded great. And I said to him, Okay, I'll buy the record off you, and that's how it started. Really, from literally from as simple as that. I hadn't met Grace. I just heard her voice uh, when it when the record started, and uh, that was it. And then she made the guy who had been producing that record, uh, which it was called Portfolio. That was her first album, and it did quite well. Not very well, but quite well. And then. The, the second record he did, it didn't do so well. The third record also didn't do so well. And when I say didn't do so well, I'm not sure we would even release them. But then that was a time where I thought I would love to like work with her personally in the studio. And I had a studio in Nassau, the Bahamas. And so I put together a, a band to come and play for her. Four people from Jamaica, one person from France, one from England, and all of whom didn't know each other. The four from Jamaica knew each other, but they didn't know each other. They didn't know what was happening. Grace didn't really know what was happening. I'm not the best organized person in the world. So nobody really had been told exactly what was happening. So right at the beginning, it felt like it could have been a disaster. 
And in fact, it turned around completely and it was wonderful. And we had three or four albums of Grace from that. And going back to La Vianne Rose, amazing. But what you identified in that, which I hadn't realized, is that the producer on her music before, they were dis- removing her from the process more and more. And you recognized you have to bring her back in. Yes, they did remove her. They removed her from it. But, you know, I think it was because when I got the band and she was there, she put a lot of work into it, into singing. She would be rehearsing in the morning for hours, you know, on her voice. And it was one of those things where it's like magic or whatever you call it. I call it magic. They just pulled together because the band, the Jamaicans, didn't know who were these two people who had come from Europe. Who were these people? <laughs> you know, and the people from Europe didn't had no idea who the Jamaicans were. So in the first couple of days, nobody was really getting on too well. In fact, what happened was the husband of Grace at the time, he was a brilliant photographer and art director and huge talent himself. And he'd done this photograph of Grace looking like an American soldier sitting down, looking like a GI and looking very serious. And I said, you got to up the picture and, and put it on the wall of the studio and so everybody can see that that's what I want the record to look like and sound like. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing you do. You bring unexpected artists together and just something new and alchemy takes place. I'm also thinking back to Concrete Jungle, how you brought in Wayne Perkins and it adds this other element that makes the song resonate even more. Yes, that's true. I heard him playing and I love the way he played. And it was kind of what I wanted Bob to do was that musicianship adding to his songs. Yeah, it takes it to a whole other level. And what Grace Jones said about you is, of course, I think says it so concisely, you know how to get the very best out of people. You're a mover and a shaker and a mischief maker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's Grace. She's a character. Yes, and beyond. She is. She's um, unique. She's unique, I tell you. She looks exactly the same. This is more than 40 years later. She looks exactly the same. It's unbelievable. There's some magic going on there. And then, of course, for you two, and Bono says of you that, that you're like the, the magic man, I guess he calls you. And that when he first met you in your flip-flops in the pub, he thought, this guy is unemployable. that's true that's true somebody called me from my office in england he was he would he was doing the press and he called me i was in jamaica and he told me there's a band in england that you should come over and see because i think they're great so bob marley was doing a concert in london and so i was going to be going there anyhow so i thought after the concert maybe they can set up that the band can play in a little club somewhere and i can come and listen to them and so that was set up and after the show it was about half an hour 45 minutes to go to the club and it was a tiny little club and I went in, the band had sort of booked the club. They hadn't really booked it for an audience. They just wanted to have somewhere where they could play so that I could see them and listen. And when I went to the club, I saw them and they started. And I thought, my gosh, they're, they're really good. This band are really, really good. 
And they, just the team of four of them were just solid. There was something about them. They were just like a strong team. And also there was a guy there who I met and he was their manager. And I was pretty sloppy, normally sort of sandals and never really dressed properly. And I went in the club. There was this man there who was dressed, you know, for business dressed for serious, you know, and that was clear. It wasn't just a casual little thing. This was this was somebody who was a manager. And I was really impressed because I thought, you know, he can really bring this band through. So the band themselves played and the band were great. I liked them. I absolutely liked them. But there wasn't anything that I feel that I personally could have contributed to except the fact that they had somebody there who was a manager who was a properly dressed serious person you know and i loved the band and i knew that they would make it because there was a determination from them and bono himself was somebody who's just had a driving force which just came out of him you know and as i said this manager seriously dressed was there in this scruffy little club but I felt that he's going to be able to bring the band all the way. And I went back and I said to my company, I said, I want to sign the band and I want you to follow the manager. And that was really it. Yeah, I've spoken to those who have seen them like at like Dandelion Market and done these, these small venues, but they had it from that beginning that self-belief and you recognize that and you just given That's them right. the space to like from small venue to well, the world. Right. That's right. Great, great instincts. I don't know how you honed them. I know that it's something you pick up along the way. And I know that young music producers listening to this or reading The Islander are thinking, how do I do this? How to get the flip flops? <laughs> There's no recipe book, but they'll be kind of, they'll be getting a lot of tips. But I mean, I don't know if you what your advice to them is. No, I think you keep, I think you need to be aware and be open to what can happen and get a feel for, get an instinct. I guess, I, I think I've been blessed with instinct, you know, I really did. I mean, I did not do well at school. I passed zero exams. I'm unemployable, but I've been blessed with having instincts because, you know, as I just told you, the instinct of you two was seeing their determination. The fact that the music itself initially wasn't close to what most of my music was, because most of my music was bass and drum, and most of their music was vocal. So it wasn't that it was like, you know, it was a certain kind of music that I like all the time. I like music from all different kinds of levels. And uh, I think that's one of the things which was lucky, the fact that I heard all this classical music at deafening volume in the early days. So I sort of learned to listen and to make your own little judgment that you end up liking most. I mean, I tended to like more Italian music than the German, even though and etc. was dramatic and everything, but I didn't feel for it as much as I felt for the Italian music, Puccini, etc. So that I think it's really those different sort of instincts from early time and also these different people i got a chance to meet these different people and just see how you're open to the world so in many cases people get locked into one one sort of one sort of thing but to me I'm, i've been open at things coming from 
everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and what you do is you invite artists then to be open to all aspects, all the different musics in them. As I look across your career, there's a variety of sounds, but what seems to unite them, these musicians, these storytellers, it's like music for the generations. And the songs, they make us feel, they make us think, and it connects to something timeless. And, and then you have artists like Tom Waits, you know, just all these very original voices. Yes, well, Tom Waits is amazing, absolutely incredible. A brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. But I went and stayed with him a couple of days in his home in California, and I slept in one of the rooms. And I sort of found out about him a little bit from that because he had all kinds of newspapers in this room. And I was thinking, oh boy, he gets these ideas from these different papers. And he was somebody who is a brilliant guy, somebody who's just knows the world really well and a very well-read person and very, very smart and an incredible sense of humor. It's beautiful. I see why you gravitate to each other. And if it's possible, because we didn't get to mention yet Island Outpost and Golden Eye. So we've been talking about the evolution of the music industry since the 60s. It's just changed so much for opportunities for like oh. young artists. I think we couldn't replicate your musical career now. Yes. Well, in a way, you know, somebody can be learning guitar and they're playing guitar and they find that they really have a gift, you know. And they have an ability to do something. And then, so what can we do with it? What can I do with this gift? And maybe it's something which they feel they need to put a lyric to create a song. So I think it, it can keep coming at the moment. It's a very different world. I mean, now there's a, a merger of technology, creativity, just human be beings. That the technology is sort of taken over in a way, so much. It's the ideas that are coming up are just stunning. It used to be that we'd go through the whole process and then when the record was finished, you'd put the album cover to it and the marketing, etc., and you'd try and get somebody to take it to a radio station to play it on the radio, or you'd hope you could get somebody to write about it in the paper. But nowadays, boom, I mean, what about Gangnam Style? Do you <laughs> For me, when, when that record came out, I said, this is the beginning of a new era. That record went from zero to a billions of sales in no time at all. It didn't need to go through any of that whole process and everything else. It was just something which had been creatively done, put together in a way, and out of it had come, and it just hit everybody. And it's a new world. Well, yeah, that's a great point, because the immediacy of feedback. So maybe it doesn't have the slowness of allowing things to mature, you know, like same with like we've gone from film, movie making to like digital and everything. There's no time for that reflection, which is nice. But the immediacy of getting to your audiences. We just have so much, it's hard for people to choose now. Yes, I think it's an exciting time. I really do. It's just a changed world. I think things will just be happening in a different way. Yes. And you've also made films, made and distributed many. Kiss of the Spider Woman. We talked a little bit of How Do They Come. So you have many careers and it seems like a career that's really been throughout your life. It is one of hospitality and bringing people into these atmospheres where they can flourish. And now you do that with the Island Outpost and the Golden Eye. And just tell us a little bit about that. Again, by chance, you know, 
I'd been lucky by chance. Where that changed was there was somebody who worked with me in the record business who wanted to sign a DJ. She was a DJ and a singer, and he wanted me to go because she was going to Miami. And would I be there when they're putting together her costume and things, etc., etc.? So I said, okay. And I went down there and they checked me into a hotel, which was a huge hotel, which I, I didn't like, care for at all. So I left and rented a car and drove around Miami. And I drove along and I was looking at the, the different buildings and I was thinking, I don't understand this. There's the only people sitting on the veranda and there's nothing happening. I don't get it. And everything was just like broken down. And that said, I can't believe this is Miami Beach because I'd gone up to Miami Beach when I was... I think it was about six or seven years old with my mother and father when I'd gone from Jamaica. So my father was going to Canada and we stopped in Miami. And so I saw how it, everything had sort of deteriorated so much from when I'd been there years before. And along the way, I eventually went to in the little area where they were looking at the costume and everything else like that. And then there was a, a woman who was working on the costume, and she seemed familiar to, to me. And here was this woman, Barbara Huliniki, doing the costumes. And I thought, well, how is she doing the costume for this girl, who is really not a, a big deal initially. It's just something really as a sort of DJ and everything. I said, and I, I couldn't really make any sense because Barbara Huliniki had started something in London which had become huge. And she was a goddess as far as I was concerned. And so when I saw her, I said to her, oh, what's happened to the Miami Beach? Because when I was here before, it was really happening. And it seems to be really kind of derelict. And I said, I'm just going to wander and have a look. And I wandered up and down. And then there was this, this one building which was derelict. In fact, it was a crack house. And I saw it and I thought, well, maybe I'd buy that and turn it into a hotel or something. So I went back to Barbara and I said, Barbara, would you consider doing the hotel for me, fixing up the hotel? Which in itself was a kind of crazy thing for me to do because her whole thing was fashion and clothes and things like like this but I just felt that she had the talent and she had the gift and so I asked her if she would do that for me and she made that first hotel. Yes, oh. Barbara Huniki of course of Biba fame and uh, so was able to, like you, identify zeitgeists. And I think also, it seems like throughout your career, you've always been discovering these rough stones and knowing when to polish them into diamonds and then knowing when to start polishing, right? Yes, well, that's, that's true because she did the first hotel, it was called the Marlin. It was the hotel. And the, and the Marlin kind of opened up South Beach because Versace came and stayed at the Marlin for about a year. He would be coming to the Marlin all the time. And then eventually he built his own house there. Yes, so Barbara who did this first hotel. And then I ended up with eight hotels. And Barbara did that. And then she did that. And she did that. And then I got fed up with it, though, because they had the sort of rules they had in government there was that if there was a hurricane coming off the west coast of Africa, you would already then have to start closing up everything in case it came and hit Miami. And when you had to close everything, it meant you had to cancel all your bookings. You had to let the staff go and everything else like that. And of course, you know, when 
something starts on the west coast of Africa, who knows where it's going to go? You can't just automatically say you've got to beware that, that, that this is going to happen and close everything down. And I said, well, that just makes no sense at all. And so I sold everything. And that was that. Yes, and you brought that then to Jamaica Island Outpost, which has been, again, beautiful atmospheres for people to just explore and just really unique atmospheres and to get in touch with their artistic spirit. I believe also even Sting wrote Every Breath You Take There, and you've just always been attracting tremendous talent and creating beautiful atmospheres that inspire people. Yeah, I guess it's a lot of luck. I've been given a lot of luck. (laughs) But it's a real talent. And I want to close on just as you end the Islander, you ask these really important questions seen there, as you describe in Jamaica, when you're sitting around and you're asking, you know, what is the point of life? Why are we here? Well, it's really great if you can be involved in doing something which brings something to people, lifts things, you know, if you can find a way to, when I say find a way, you just get an instinct of something, oh, this is going to be fun, that can be great. I'm always looking, I don't know that I'm deliberately looking at things, I think things have happened and I've seen something or got a feel for something or feel for the person or, you know, I don't know, I think I've been given a lot of luck. Yeah, but they're drawn to something in you. And you. I think they see that, the beauty of your spirit. And that's why that's you brought this beautiful music into the world, this just honest storytelling and great artists. And so thank you, Chris Blackwell, for bringing so much happiness and musical talent into the world, your incredible contributions to the history of music and what you do to nurture and inspire artists. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Wow, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.